Hey everyone, welcome to Simplexity, where we simplify the complexities of life and bring a little curiosity and contemplation to meaningful, sometimes difficult conversations. I'm your host, Allison Stoner, and we're still self-quarantining, and I do have a few young toddlers across the way who hopefully will be (laughs) quiet during this time, but you know, Kids like to express themselves, so we might have a choir, and that's cool. All right, let's get into it. Between The Matrix, Amazon Alexa, and Google Assistant, you're probably familiar with the concept of artificial intelligence. A subset of AI is machine learning, where an algorithm is given a teaching set of data that it models answers around while learning and improving from experience. Trust me, I read machine learning for dummies. Beyond our personal uses, these algorithms do a lot of heavy lifting from filtering loan and job applications to running facial recognition inquiries. But bias can creep into these algorithms and discriminate against people based on race, gender, socioeconomic status, and other factors. If you want more information, we also did an episode with Samantha Stein, who helps lay the foundation for this topic. Recently, companies have started taking notice, hashtag a little late, but we're glad, developing machine learning fairness initiatives to reduce bias and build products that are accessible to all. Our guest today is not only an expert in this field, but also in successfully navigating her career through industries known for lacking diversity. In 2005, Tiffany Dang graduated with a degree in geopolitics and systems engineering from West Point, the world's leading military academy. To gain admission to West Point, candidates must be nominated from a member of Congress, a delegate resident commissioner, or even from the president and vice president of the U.S. Once in the academy, you are not only graded in the traditional academic sense, but also on military leadership and mandatory competitive athletics. It's a tough and competitive process to be accepted into, let alone complete. From West Point, Tiffany went on to serve in the Army as a military intelligence officer before becoming a consultant for the State Department in Washington, D.C. In 2017, tired of writing countless reports she wasn't sure anyone even cared about, she made the shift in her career from government to the private sector as she headed to Silicon Valley. Tiffany spent her first two years in tech focused on privacy program management for Facebook artificial intelligence intelligence, and Messenger, and then transitioned to Google, where she leads the Responsible Machine Learning Program team. Through her career in the military, in D.C., and in Silicon Valley, there has been one constant. They're all white, male-dominated fields. So today, we're getting up close and personal about West Point, the military, and these institutions. We'll break down machine learning fairness and algorithmic bias, examine user privacy, or the lack thereof, and discuss what it's like raising a family in this era and her vision for a fairer future. Tiffany, welcome to Simplexity. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes. So let's head back first to earlier chapters. I want to paint the scene a bit for our listeners and feel free to correct me, of course. For everyone listening, imagine you've applied and you've been accepted into West Point. So during reception day or our day, 
Orientation starts immediately upon arrival as you enter the toughest, most sophisticated educational and military program in the States. Your life becomes daily formations, inspections, duties, obstacle courses, skills training, and education, and every move is commanded, every second marked, and every choice has a strict consequence. And as a plebe or a freshman, you head into basic training, often called beast barracks, is that correct? Sure. Okay. Uh, uh, it's a six or seven week intensive process that turns civilians into cadets. Since remember, you contractually agreed to sacrifice your social freedom and identity for the army's codes and objectives and the protection of your country. Meanwhile, upperclassmen grill you on the bugle notes, which is this thick book of phrases and facts that you have to memorize word for word, otherwise you may get demerited or worse, I'm sure, if you cannot recite them on demand. And so your journey at West Point continues as you master the basics in marksmanship and explosives and you train in Seaburn, which is chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear, just in case you're engaging in chemical warfare, of course. And you undergo real combat lessons. You're graded on your knowledge of a breadth of topics like cybersecurity, global terrorism, even helicopter aeronautics, homeland security, you name it. And by the end of your time at West Point, you've learned practically every role in the army. And that includes scuba, artillery, aviation. It's very regimented, and yet it also sounds like a total whirlwind, and I'm sure that's only 0.1% of it. Tiffany, can you walk us through your experience at West Point in terms of training, education, and managing your own mental, emotional, physical health, and sort of the you know short and long-term impact that West Point has had on your life? Yeah, so I mean, it was tough, right? Like, there's no two ways about it. So, you know, you wake up early in the morning. I um, mean, you go to, you know, what's called formation. We all move from formation to eating together, right? In, in the mess hall. And then you're off to your classes for, for the day. And they're intense classes. I think that West Point is really known for breaking people in the sense that, you know, you could have been the top student, right? Like in your class, but mm -hmm. there, you know, things are tougher, right? Like everybody's highly intelligent. Everyone's super competitive, right? And so finding where you fit into that space and how to manage your nerves and how to manage that competitive spirit so that you're not running yourself into the ground is something that you have to, to try to figure out daily. And you're 17 or 18 years old, right? Like, and you don't have those coping mechanisms built up yet to be able to, to do all that and to handle it. I was also an athlete, so I ran track. So after, you know, my day was finished with, with all of my courses, I went down to the track, which was really, it was my home. You know, even though, you know, you're like running until you're like barfing, like, you know, you're, you're just like, you're so happy to be there for, for those few hours to kind of, to release, right? Like mm -hmm. a lot of the stress that you're feeling. And then right. you make the friends and the connections and, and things like that. But to your point about like how it shaped my life, it was an intense experience. Like I said, I was not emotionally prepared, mentally prepared for being under that microscope, having to be the absolute best you can be every single day, right? But that is actually what's given me this like modicum of, of success, you know, as an adult, right? Is like, mm -hmm. 
learning how to manage stress, learning how to perform under, you know, in really high pressure situations. When you don't know something, having the courage to say that you don't know and being open to learning those things, right? There are things you just cannot know when you go to West Point, you just can't do it, right? right. Um, totally foreign concepts. And so being brave and being vulnerable and learning about yourself and making sure you're authentic, right? Because mm. one piece I think that people don't understand is how much the military is about people, right? There's knowledge that you have to learn, things that you have to perform, but it is about people. It's about mm -hmm. learning what motivates people, learning how to look at, you know, as you graduate and, you know, a lot of people, you know, from my class, you know, went off to war immediately afterwards, right? And 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 how do you connect with a 70-year-old person when you're 22? And you're looking at them and you have to ask them to do something horrible, right? Not even something horrible, but something that like they demands could all of doing, them. Mm -hmm. Demands all of them, and they could lose their life in, in in doing that thing, right? How do you motivate that person? How do you inspire that person? How do you lead with, like I said, the vulnerability and the authenticity, so that people can look you in your eye and and be confident that you would do it too? That is hard, and and you learn that while you're there. And so I owe much of that core of who I am to that experience. Wow. It, yeah, it sounds like there's a mixture of hard skills and soft skills and also in doing some research further learning something as simple as memorizing facts when we're recounting stories for friends or family and we embellish there's no space for that when you're in you know a matter of life and death you need to be able to just quote where you were who was around what happened and give the exact details and not fluff and not you know let your right brain kind of jump in and speak just from an emotional standpoint and learning how to, to do that reporting while also hearing you speak about vulnerability is such a, a powerful, I was going to say dichotomy, but I really don't think that they're opposites. The fact that you're bringing both and together is that's a, that's not a small leap in maturity and personal development. So West Point, while very prestigious, is obviously not infallible. And while students may come from geographically diverse locations, it's not automatically inclusive. Nowhere is if you're dealing with human beings. And, you know, there's an honor code that states a cadet will not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. But it doesn't mean what happens inside the halls are perfect by any rank or position. And so woven into West Point's history and its staunchly upheld, very revered traditions are also some dehumanizing practices like violent hazing rituals, experiments, you know, there's there's racism, there's sexism, there's discrimination. And I'm, I'm by no means trying to put West Point down as much as just examine any small group as a microcosm of the macro. I read that the first black male graduate endured four years of the silent treatment that he was never spoken to in class and training ever. And decades later, when females were finally permitted, of course, many face, you know, grotesque harassment and beyond. And still today, West Point is, is pressed to evolve and to examine its own ethics and etiquette. For example, for those who are unfamiliar, last year, West Point chose to remove a motto from the Army football team's flag as it was linked to a white supremacist group. And I'm sure internally there are secrets and experiences that graduates and staff will just simply go to the grave with. But as a woman of color with your own individual mission, purpose, and unique experiences, how did your reality interact 
with the environment and information reality of fellow cadets and faculty? And did this affect how you approached your service alongside your unit? Yeah, I mean, I think, so you were referencing like Henry O. Flipper, who was like the first black graduate and Benjamin Davis, who, you know, he was a Tuskegee Airman and I named my son after him, right? And he endured, you know, four years of silence. They're just these great big figures just in my life. And I remember always thinking about them while I was there. You know, I did have a strong, so I have a long history of of service in my family that I really wasn't aware of until I went to West Point. And then I would constantly think about like these people and and how they survived because I was not like doing well. I was not thriving, right? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. um, and I got to talk to people, right? So I would constantly think about that and what it took to always be a first, like just always having to be the first and the strongest, right? And for me, how that manifested itself within my environment is just, it really goes back to that. We talked about vulnerability, right? Like I could not pretend to be something that I was not. I wasn't white. I wasn't a male. I was just me. And I don't, I had not found my voice at that time yet, right? And maybe in some aspects still, but I just figured out I had to be me. I couldn't be this caricature of me. Mm. I couldn't pretend I didn't like the things I liked. I couldn't pretend, you know, and, and, and there wasn't an intense pressure to do this. Right. But like representation does matter. Like we talked about, like, it's, it's great having, you know, that slogan, you know, that, you know, just in the public sphere now, right. That it really does matter. Right. Like when a little boy asks president Obama to touch his hair, right. Cause mm. you have hair like me, you know, like it really does matter in those spaces. And I saw none of that. Um, I think I could count all of the black women who graduated in my class on, you know, both of my fingers and a couple of my toes, right? Not many. And so learning to stand firm in like who I was, right? It helped me get through, you know, it helped me understand my deficiencies and helped me to work on those, right? Mm. And it made me hungrier to, Mm. you know, make it through and then also make a difference. And I do keep going back to this idea of of vulnerability because you really do have to, to learn who you are and to stand true and just like firm in that, even when you're unsure, no matter what the surrounding is, because, you know, you have to believe that you are meant to be there and you are meant to have those experiences for a reason. Yeah, that's incredible. I always have so much respect for the resiliency. And then just even not only a matter of being a minority and a majority in any facet, but just person's doggedness to plant their feet in the ground and decide to occupy space. And then not only to occupy space, but to do that in a way that is, while the world has been so harmful toward them, to choose to somehow transmute that into something that is collectively liberating. There is, I think, fewer things that are a testament to like the the highest version of what the human species has to offer. So a part of being in the high pressure environments is preparing you for, you know, if you're going into combat, if you're going out in any threatening environment, this concept of threats follows us throughout our lives, our, our daily experiences. Um, so let's, let's talk about this concept a little bit. 
In warfare and, and matters of national and homeland security, there are looming threats from all directions, including external and internal. And training prepares you to not only detect the threat, but perhaps even become the threat by being 10 steps ahead of the enemy. For example, if a, a fellow soldier decides to leak documents of classified military tactics, that can put the country at risk. So there are measures to prevent this. Or if you're in combat, there's a possibility that you could be taken hostage. So you have to learn how to evade capture. It gets even more layered if you consider evolving international relations. What if a fellow cadet began training at West Point while her country of origin was in good standing with the U.S., but due to unforeseen events, these countries become hostile enemies and she gets deployed there with orders to attack the city in which she was born. On one hand, there's, yes, a potential threat as to how she may change her perception of both countries and therefore her involvement and commitment to the mission. On the other hand, there's a potential threat in how she's perceived and treated by others in her unit, even if her loyalty to fulfill the U.S. objective is unwavering. So for many reasons, you have to be able to anticipate every kind of threat and then implement solutions or procedures in advance. And as these threats abound, there's from my observation, there's a fine line between strategic planning and then being unnecessarily fearful of all things in life. What are some threats in your professional fields that you notice maybe we average civilians need to pay more attention to, um, whether that's a threat to personal health, to our systems, to our country or the planet? And then are there other threats that we're maybe publicly exaggerating throughout news and media that you're like, eh, I don't think that they're actually as harmful as they're presented? Yeah, it, it's funny, like during this like pandemic time, these really crazy times, right? And sad, sad times for very many families. When I got a master's degree, one of the things that I studied there was like the healthcare industry. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that we take for granted is how stressed that can be and like how important that is for national security, right? Mm -hmm. And you see that now, right? With a pandemic, right? A pandemic breaks out on a Navy, you know, destroyer, a carrier, right? And how there are so many national security implications to health, right? That's something that we take for granted, how just hospitals, right? And healthcare workers and our supply chains, right? All interconnected. And I feel like that's a threat that we need to really look at, right? Is, mm -hmm. is who gets care care, the socioeconomic outcomes and implications of people's care. We have to think about that because a healthy country and a country that can take care of itself is paramount in terms of national security. And in terms of a threat that may be overblown, I was thinking about this a bit yesterday. So it's my husband's birthday, right? He's also a veteran and had his birthday on Memorial Day. It was kind of cool. And, you know, there's always this like, amplified narrative around like Americans are just like so like so partisan right like they have nothing in common with each other all, all this fighting all the time and it's you know true to a certain extent right but like I feel like there's overwhelmingly like so much good that's happening in the world and so many people that really care right and you see all like people writing on the chalk you know all this chalk on sidewalks thinking healthcare workers, right? We were sitting out on our front porch and two of our neighbors came by and brought my husband beer. And we're like, happy Memorial Day. Thanks for serving. Happy birthday, right? And 
I don't know if, you know, you or any of your listeners are familiar with East Palo Alto, but it's a historically like underrepresented, you know, like minority, you know, like struggled with crime, you know, in the nineties, completely like, you know, transformed and the way that citizens interact with each other and with like the police, it really is a great model for, I think for the nation, but it still has reputation. So when I tell people I live in East Palo Alto, they're like, Oh my God, even my dad, he's like, Oh my God. Like, are you, how could you live there? Right. And this has been the people here have been the kindest and the most welcoming. Like it's my hood, right? Like this is my neighborhood and it feels so good to be here and people are welcoming and they look out for my children. And so I I think there's an overwhelming amount of good that's in the world that doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah. Also when you, where energy goes, attention flows and where attention flows, energy goes, it's important to highlight the disparity and bring action and change to it. And it's also important to not get so far lost in the trenches that you do not see the rest of the beauty and opportunity around you. Again, the both and view that's forever more like life is a lot of different shades of a lot of different things at all times. So speaking of, let's jump in a little bit to your experience as um, a military intelligence officer. What a title. (laughs) When I read that, I was like, Ooh, okay. There's, there's a lot here to, to hash out. So for those who are unaware, because I wasn't specifically either an intelligence officer collects, compiles and, analyzes the geographic, linguistic, and sociological information necessary for a military operation to be successful. First, what are the career requirements, key skills, technical skills of an intelligence officer, or at least your experience? Yeah, so from my experience, it can be a wide array of things and and traits that people have, but a curiosity, right? To, mm-hmm. to learn more. I think wanting to learn about other people and other cultures to your, our, you know, rewinding, you know, 10 minutes ago to our conversation about having to recall facts at a drop of a hat, right? Like that is a great skill of probably someone who may want to go into intelligence, being able to recall details, having great recall around conversations and, you know, their surroundings. So I would say just attention to, to detail, but there are lots of different types of intelligence too. And so I would say that for anybody who, you know, wants to get involved in, you know, the FBI or the CIA or something like that, or in the military, there's no straight path. There's no like type of person that you have to be in order to, to do this, right? There are, are many different roads you can take and many different skills that are important for for different types of intelligence. And how is the the raw data from intelligence specialists used? Like why is this position important to the greater unit? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it helps uh, inform decision making, right? And in your in a constant loop of decision making, especially in a place like the military. And I think that's why when you talk about leadership, you have to lead and make those decisions, many of them throughout and consequential ones too. And maybe sometimes, you know, you may not have all the information that you need to make a decision. You always want more. You always want to be more sure. And so I, th- I think that like, that is the hard part, but learning how to make those decisions in spite of of some uncertainty, being able to like connect dots, right, in ways that others may not be able to is super Mm. important. That I'm assuming has come in handy as a mother as well, when you're (laughs) raising a young being on the planet, and there is so much uncertainty, and you're saying, this is what I do know, this is what I don't know, ready, set, go. (laughs) Yep, fingers crossed, you know. Yeah, right. (laughs) 
<laughs> so you can put up some bumpers, but sometimes you just got to get to the end of the lane, like go for exactly. it. Um, so you, you've actually noted that you didn't see deployment to Iraq or Afghanistan and, and you've experienced guilt for years over that. Despite not seeing combat, the intense nature of this line of work carries a heavy emotional toil, regardless of, of your location and warfare, whether physical or informational, it's traumatizing. And to endure, you know, we find coping mechanisms. And sometimes it's important to remember the reason you keep going. Um, what was yours then? And has it changed today? And how did you go about processing the guilt? I think time helped me process the guilt. There was like nothing else. Like, you know, people always tell you, you know, it wasn't meant for you. You just weren't supposed to go. It just wasn't in the cards, right? And that's never enough. That's not a satiating answer. You don't feel like that's good enough. I had a really close friend who passed away, um, Emily J.T. Perez. She was the first African-American uh, command sergeant major for the Corps of Cadets, right? Like an amazing story. Um, an amazing person, right? And she was 22 years old and she died, right? And it made no sense to me. And it was hard to cope with. So I think just the arc of time was the only thing that healed that pain for me and helped me understand and, and finding a passion now too, I would say, you know, with like algorithmic fairness and algorithmic bias, like I felt a, a large void in my life for having missed that experience. And that was a seminal experience for everyone in my cohort, right? Like ev almost everyone there. And, and and there are many other classmates of mine who I thought about yesterday on Memorial Day and in perpetuity because, you know, they aren't here to celebrate these things. And so just living and finding passion and finding purpose has helped kind of heal those wounds and staying involved in the community. Like I still like, you know, I married a veteran, right? Like my brother went to West Point, right? Like, so I have like still those connections that are important, right? Like those things that ground me and, and help remind me of, of why service is so important and why I went to West Point and what I loved about it and what I loved about my military experience. So yeah, those things have all been like important in, in my healing. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. And we'll dive into machine learning fairness and everything that you've gotten involved in since. But first, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We will be right back. Welcome back. We're here with Tiffany Dang, military veteran, and now one of the key women leading efforts for machine learning fairness at Google heard of it. So Tiffany, you consulted and worked for the State Department and the Department of Defense. And then you joined Facebook as a privacy manager. And that's where you started working in machine learning fairness related matters. What is machine learning fairness? And why did this call to you? I actually had no clue what it was three years ago, right? Like, had a random conversation with the research scientist around, you know, the subject. And I'm like, tell me more. Like, mm -hmm. I don't even know what that is. I feel like I should know, but I don't know. And so the conversation just kind of went on for, you know, a couple, a couple weeks. And I was intrigued. And I thought like, why aren't we doing more about this? Like, this is a really, really big deal. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? This impacts all of us in some way or another, right? And AIs will be ubiquitous someday. It's many, many things from healthcare decisions, right? To credit decisions, like you talked about at the top of the show, right? There are just a whole host of things that AI will be used for to aid in human decision-making, right? And so why aren't we talking more about this? Why don't we have more rules? Why aren't we talking about the ethics of it? Like, why aren't we talking about transparency, right? These are 
all things, they need to be at the forefront of our conversations as we talk about AI. And so just try, just dug in and read all I could and consumed all I could and asked all the questions I could. It was like super annoying. Like, can we meet, you know, can we talk about this? And that's really where the passion started. It's interesting using a term like ML fairness, because the word itself is somewhat unclear. Um, you know, different cultures define fairness, justice, good and bad by their unique standards. So how do you tend to this issue at a global level and enforce standards respectfully and yet also protectively? Yeah, I definitely think that's an area that needs further research, right? Because humankind is not a monolith, right? We're just not all the same, right? Mm -hmm. And I think right now, when we think about fairness, we think about it in the Western context, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is a lot more that we need to learn about the world and about, you know, the people that occupy all of these different spaces and, and how they use products and how they use services, right? And how AI can actually be a force for good that can increase the fidelity and and the velocity of like decisions that are being made that can aid again, you know, just aid with decision-making and not make decisions in this like black box, don't know what it does, not worried about what it does kind of world. Right. And so I think as, you know, we're thinking forward, we just have to ensure that like all of those things that we talked about ethics and like, should we do this? Just the question of, should we do this? Does this make sense? And having the right people at the table to inform that decision is really important. You can't really talk about, you know, the LGBTQ plus community or Native Americans or, you know, the Latinx community without having them there, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's important that they're there to help inform those decisions. Um, And so making sure the right people are there, making sure we're asking why and if it's necessary, and then putting like the correct controls in place will be super important moving forward. Right. And this obviously is across every field and sector. I think a lot about the nonprofit world with great intentions and very hurtful approaches, unknowingly going into communities with the idea of developing and aiding and supporting, but having no time spent developing relationships, asking what they need, what, how, what ideas they have to empower themselves as a community and just providing the resources or support until they can sustain themselves and protect their culture and you know way of living and being and so there's a there's a lot to learn from this concept and apply it everywhere and of course if machine is going to become you know our kind of right hand aid in this lifetime then and it already is whether we kind of are aware of it or not then we absolutely have to look at the internal programming of it who's who's making it who's creating it who's designing it so speaking of this bias can you help us understand some examples of where bias has shown up in products or services that we use or in the algorithms? I think one of the most important things to understand is that, you know, algorithms are an outgrowth of data, right? So it's important to understand like that piece. And so if you are like, for instance, in, you know, like a DNA database, if you want to know what your genetic makeup is and you, you know, submit your your swab or whatever, but like within that data base, there is only DNA from, let's say, Scandinavia. The data is biased, right? It's skewed, right? Because it doesn't properly represent the entire world. So me, as a Black woman, you know, I want to know what I am. It checks against the Scandinavian DNA and it's like, you don't exist, right? One of these things um, is not like the other. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Just a tiny bit different. Um 
And so like, that's just kind of like a, a hypothetical way of like thinking about this, right? Like representation and data matters, right? Because that is how a machine learns patterns right? And, and that's how machine learning works, right? So it's important to have a representative portion of data so that the machine can learn lots and lots of different types of things and not just be trained on, on one thing, right? Mm-hmm. And make connections with, with data that is like skewed very heavily in one, one direction or another. This reminds me if anyone's listening and they want to cross-reference other episodes, I have an interview with Bruce Garrison way at the beginning of this series that helps you unpack your own bias, just the beginnings of it. And then Idris Sandu and I talk about design bias and diction bias in a more recent episode. So definitely dive in and see what you learn. And and please always feel free to, to let me know, send a DM or leave a comment when we share this episode so we can see what you're learning and how you're applying it to your own life. And thank you. I appreciate the explanation. So you're up close and personal every day with these large, complex institutions. And there's such a web of departments and, you know, it can make progress feel like gridlock when you have to go through 12 rounds of approval and checks and balance and this and that. And sometimes it feels like, you know, are we making any difference? How did your previous experience, if it did, help you understand how these institutions work? And how are you finding it possible to be effective as both an individual and then also working within your team? Yeah, that's such a hard question, right? Because I often feel like I'm not doing a great job, right? And I think, again, understanding that institutions exist to protect almost, right, the sanctity of what like their mission is. And so in order to do that, sometimes things inherently have to be a bit slower, right? We have to make sure that it is representative of of what we're trying to put out there, right? And so things can seem slow and they can seem like they're not progressing. And then you as an individual, me as an individual, I often feel like I'm not doing enough, right? I'm not doing enough to, to push harder. And so I think that having the knowledge that things can be slow, right? But you'll still get there, right? Like I, I am thinking of like the Martin Luther King quote, which I think he borrowed from someone else where he says like the arc of the moral universe like is long, right? But it bends towards justice, right? And so when you think about all the things that you may have to go through in order to get to a certain point, like you should expect that it may take a long time, right? And it's not going to be comfortable, but never keep, you know, taking your foot off, pushing through the uncertainty, pushing through the bureaucracy and seeing it to the end is the most important part, right? I wrote a note down as you were talking, because it reminds me that the institution is designed, you said, to protect its objective, its agenda. And so it's important to bring people into the institution's agenda. You know, if if an institution is only there for profit or for the bottom line and people aren't a part of it, well, then you'll very easily see how you reap what you sow. And so making people, bringing human dignity and the value of life and, and equity into the fabric of an institution is obviously something that it it appears that that you are doing every day in your job currently, but then also I'm sure newer generations are thinking about the longevity of the institutions that already exist and also designing new institutions. How can we be more cognizant of what we lay the groundwork with? What are those pieces of the groundwork and make sure everyone gets a chance to, you know, to lay a piece 
I wanted to ask a little bit about privacy because there's this, you know, issue these days with signing these, I call them EULAs, E-U-L-A, the end user license agreements that we just skip over when we're downloading an app and we click agree to terms at the bottom of the page. And then suddenly, you know, there's a public health authority who can trace our data all the way to Timbuktu. And we're like, oh shoot, there's no privacy. It seems like they're protecting me, but also where else could my data be? How can we as consumers and users of technology be more aware of the privacy disrupting or destroying applications, platforms, and devices? How can we be wiser consumers? Yeah, I mean, you definitely have to read, right? A lot of the things, it's like uncomfortable, but I think a lot, some companies, some companies are trying to make it easier. And like, they'll tell you, why are you seeing this ad? Or they'll give you the opportunity to uh, change your privacy settings in one click. Or they will, you know, they just give you these opportunities to do a privacy checkup and change all the things that you are uncomfortable with, or you may not even have known or enabled. And so clicking into settings, right? Reading what they mean. You know, if I share this, will this be shared with like, who also will this be shared with, right? Mm. And arming yourself with all of that knowledge is super, super important. And understanding too, that like, your information is, it should be private, right? I mean, it is yours. And so whatever you're interested in and sharing, that's all you should share, right? You shouldn't feel obligated to share more. And so really taking the reins themselves and, and, and doing whatever you feel comfortable with, I think is really important. And I think the other piece is like be an advocate, right? If, if you don't feel comfortable in some way with any of the things that are going on in the privacy realm, like be vocal about it, right? Like tell people how you're feeling, talk to your congressperson, you know what I mean? Like write letters, right? It is a defining issue of our time. All that we do online, you know, can in some ways be be tracked. And if you're uncomfortable with that, like make noise about it, right? right. Because I think a lot of companies are now listening and making a lot of changes in response to the way users are feeling about their personal data. Right. And this data is actually, it bends around to go into what machines are learning about us, correct? <laughs> Yeah, it definitely can. It definitely can. You know, when you, you think about shopping habits and things like that, like it, it most certainly can. Right. They can tell even when I'm, you know, experiencing my monthly time as a, a female and notice that I tend to buy ice cream during that time and then make sure they serve me an ad with some ice cream a couple of days before. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, that was sly. I see it. <laughs> so I did have one more question in the realm of, of ethics before I ask a little bit about your family. So some companies, as we've mentioned, create products and services and technology, but they seem to have zero or minimal ethics in who they'll sell to, why they'll sell. For example, if a manufacturer makes bullets, they'll sell to both sides who are killing one another. And if they stop selling to one, you know, someone will win and the fight will be over. And so they'll be out of business. So there's, there's profit and actually perpetuating problems sometimes. Simultaneously, sometimes companies aren't focused on the lasting damage that they cause communally, environmentally, et cetera. So does Google in particular have any set of 
principles or codes and how do you and your team ensure Google sticks to them? So Google has what we call the AI principles. Um, And so these are a set of principles that, you know, we have affirmatively decided to, to abide by in ways that we will and will not use technology. And I think that's important. So, you know, when we talk about transparency and being able to understand how technology works, Google's really made a commitment to do that for the user and to really build in, when we you know, talked earlier about privacy, but building in, you know, privacy protection into all of the products that consumers use. And so I think having more frameworks like this available, asking for more frameworks like this to be available is really important when we're talking about AI so that we as consumers can understand, you know, how we are interacting with the product and its limitations um, and, and what that company has affirmatively decided to do and not do with respect to AI. Right. And we can make far more responsible decisions ourselves with shifting market demand towards certain products and services and away from others just by saying, I don't vibe with, you know, what you're dishing out. I don't want the, I don't want to eat that. That's not the meal exactly. that I'm interested in. <laughs> Put it away. I don't like cookies and cream ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you are a mother of how many do I hear? Two little ones? Three. Three? Three. Yeah. Oh my word. You are a superwoman, of course. You're helping guide the fate of our species on the job and also at home. With the information and access you have, I can estimate, but I don't want to project this onto you, that there are additional concerns raised just because you have certain education that maybe the average person outside of Google or outside of the military does not have. How does this shape the way you're raising and preparing your kids for the future? And like, what kind of world would you like to see for your kids? I I would love for them to grow up in a world that just values them, right? They're have been incidents, you know, in the entirety of time, right? When we talk about, you know, the United States, but like this idea that their life may are is it's less valuable than others. At the top of my mind, I'm thinking about Ahmad Arbery, right? Like I'm I'm thinking about the way that my children may be perceived because of the color of their skin, right? I have no idea their sexual orientation, right? And don't care like that because they're children, right? But like it pains me to think that they could live in a world where that could actually matter. And it would be beautiful for them to like break free of those shackles, right? Break free of these artificially constructed identities, right? And to just be able to be themselves, to be able to go jogging without fear, to be able to love who they want. You know what I mean? And I think that I feel in some ways we're moving toward this world, right? But then we get pulled and sucked back in different directions, right? And so I just want them to be able to experience true, true and complete happiness the way that we all envision it, right? Mm -hmm. Just complete carefree happiness and to live a life of, of service to others, but also knowing that like whatever their dream may be, they're totally within their right to be able to live it. That's beautiful. And I know that you're doing that and it's an honor to hear your process and also just to encourage listeners and and viewers. If you haven't already done your own work, there are infinite resources available and it is your and our responsibility to examine ourselves, not just in a consciousness regarding our racial profiling or our socioeconomic demographic, but truly in every single way that we are shaped and how we shape the world around us. I'm even thinking of a book called The Body Keeps the Score, which 
is, you know, it helps you understand trauma in, in your own body um, and, and those who may be suffering from PTSD, but you also end up seeing how something like racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, things can actually be so ingrained at biochemical levels that you may not consciously think or behave in a racist manner, but your body from so many different unconscious positions and in pieces of information that you've ingested and learned over your years and your upbringing has trained you to view someone as an other, to view someone as dangerous. And that can be a skin color, that can be just a difference in any way, shape or form. So I believe that in order to help you fulfill your vision for your kids, it's my responsibility and all of our Simplexity community's responsibility to create the safer world for your kids um, and for all little ones. So is there anything that you want to share that we missed before we wrap up? No, I mean, I think you may be able to hear the meltdowns that are happening in the background. And that's probably an outgrowth of not being able to have a popsicle. So apologies to everyone. But Allison, this has been amazing. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Um, and, and so grateful to be here today. Good. Thank you. Yes. Go, go get that popsicle action. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for sharing your, your incredible life and career journey. I know it's, it's still unfolding and, and blossoming into absolute beauty. And, and thanks for helping us understand how we can create a, a fairer world in AI and then also just human to human. So it's time for this week's mantras. Though we recorded this episode weeks ago, we've seen in the U.S. how relevant and necessary it is to deepen our awareness of and accountability regarding bias, race, and social issues. This is not new, and it's not going to disappear, and it is our responsibility to be integrating this work, these perspectives, into our daily life experience, our relationships, our workplace. Anyways, moving forward, I wanted to take a moment to reflect on the fact that reciting weekly affirmations for your own cognitive reprogramming and personal empowerment is not a license to ignore or bypass what's going on in the world or other people's lived realities. Obviously not claiming that that's what we're all doing, but just to be sure, my intention is for our empowerment to make us that much more aware and equipped and to have the energy and sustenance to liberate and empower others. You know, if we're not careful, using affirmations to privately build up ourselves can actually kind of lead to its own form of bias and injustice. As in, we can start to narrow our scope of beliefs and disregard anything and anyone that doesn't comply with that conviction, you know, which on the one hand, right, is like helpful to shut out some of the negative self-talk, but on the other hand, could lead to a very narrow way of seeing reality. Also, if we have access to tools to help us improve our mental health and how we think, how we feel, how we live, but we just reserve it for ourselves, you know, it can actually widen the gap of inequality, right? Because now those who have got a little more, and those who have not still didn't get any to begin with. So instead of giving you specific mantras, I just I want to take a beat to reflect on the relationship between affirmations, bias, and justice. How can affirmations be helpful in building a fairer world? 
And after you ask yourself that question, then ask, how can they add to bias and injustice? So go ahead and contemplate that for a bit and then please share your answers on Instagram. I'd love to see what you come up with. And there's no right or wrong answer. This really is just like opening our minds and our eyes and our hearts and our beings to understanding things in a new way. Um, and make sure when you share it, you tag me and tag Simplexity Podcast so I can you know check them out and repost for our community. As always, thanks so much for listening. Please do make sure you follow our guests, you share these podcast episodes with people who you think you know might be interested. And if you haven't already, give this a rating and review. This is like the little engine that could. And I will see you next week for more Simplexity. It's anything but small talk. Peace.